like mass saver suck spells, you know, like um, things like power word kill. No, that's not even a good one because you just die, right? Yeah. Live from the Mundangerous Top Rung in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Yishin. And welcome to episode 176 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about playing at high levels, or with more XP than you can shake a character sheet at. But first the rogue traders get the lay of the land in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign, and later Jack Frost nips at your nose and then freezes it off in the Character Creation Forge. So, this episode is brought to you by Kobold Press. Midgard Sagas is a new collection of 5th edition adventures from Kobold Press set in the dark fantasy world of Midgard. Is it dark because it's northern and it's winter and it's just always dark at like 5pm? Uh, yes. It's also dark because it has uh, low fantasy themes. Oh, I see. You know, it's great though uh, in the winter because you have a short adventuring day, right? So, like you can just toss out all your spells. Yeah, it's it's great until you have to fight at night. Like, that's the problem, you know? It's like you wake up, it's dark out. You come back from the office, it's dark out. You get ambushed by kobolds, it's dark out. What what kind of barbarians are fighting at night? Come on, (laughs) I clocked out, I clocked out. I'm like that sheepdog and that wolf in those Looney Tunes cartoons. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now I want to play one of those where, like, you've got to kill the goblins before uh, your shift is up. Okay. Or before their shift is up. This sounds like a miserable DCC adventure in which you play the <laughs> goblins. Anyway, Midgard Sagas contains adventures for characters from levels 3 to 8, all designed to be played within 4 to 6 hours and packed with action. Players fight their way through clockwork guards to save the city from a mad saboteur, execute a daring heist at a posh nightclub, explore the ruins of an ancient elven city, avert war with the dust goblins of the wastelands, battle a brain-eating menace from space, and more. You know, I've battled dust bunnies in my old apartment for a long time. They're hard enough to stay on top of. I can't even imagine what it takes to battle dust goblins. Which came first, do you think? The dust goblins or the wasteland? Like, were they dusty before they got there? Or did they show up and now it's a wasteland? Oh, you think they're goblins who, like, created the dust? And that made the wasteland? Or maybe they're called dust goblins because the wasteland was dusty itself and they just don't have prestidigitation. I mean, I guess there's there's only one way to find out. You've got to pick up a copy of Midgard Sagas from CobaltPress.com and check. So Shane, um, I've been a bit nostalgic lately. Uh-huh. Because I've been wasting all of my time that I should be spending doing podcast stuff uh, playing Neverwinter Nights on my phone. Oh, the yeah. enhanced edition. Yeah, it's technically a beta, and there are definitely times when it freezes and just sort of like stops working, and I have to reboot it. But you know what? I don't care. Uh, isn't Neverwinter Nights like the bad game of that series? Uh, the like original modules that like came with it, uh, and well, so it comes with Neverwinter Nights, uh, Shadows of Unrun Tide, uh, Hordes of the Underdark, and then like a host of other like smaller modules that I guess you can purchase separately or some of them are free. Um, I do not care. I'm playing through the original saga right now where I'm chasing, I'm running around with Neverwinter chasing like water Davian creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I'm having a grand old time, even though it's kind of a slog because I'm just remembering when I was doing this like 15 years ago. And like, you know, I didn't have a job. So I was just <laughs> like, woo, I want to play Neverwinter Nights for 17 hours. On a screen that was like 12 inches, but had fewer pixels than your phone. Yeah, exactly. Like it looks, it doesn't look that great because, you know, the the graphics weren't that great to begin with. Right. (laughs) Well, it's actually, uh, it's funny that you're having a little bit of a throwback because I am also having a throwback this week. Um, The last episode of Tales from Mox Fairy finally dropped. Um, so the series, the, the small arc that I was a part of is now completely up and available at geekspective.com. Wait, it's uh, over. It's over. Yeah. Your, your tiny magical kitty cat is done. My tiny magical kitty cat with a, uh, Spanish French accent is shelved fridged uh, as they say in the business. Did he die? Did not die. No spoilers. Actually, I guess you already know if you've, if you've listened to the previous three episodes, you would know <laughs> that he did not die. So does the tale continue without you? I hate that pun. Well, I hate it so one. much. I hate it so very, very much. <laughs> but yes, I believe that the tale will continue without me in two weeks. Uh, and I might be back at some point. Oh, like a recurring villain, perhaps. A recurring friend. Hmm. Wow, adorable. That's so sweet. I mean, as friendly as a cat can be, you know, like they, they think they're my friend. Uh, okay, right. They're so- not my friend. Yeah, you're you're a heartless predator. It's true. Correct. All right. Speaking of friendships, um, speaking of heartless predators, <laughs> <laughs> where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy Second Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And having escaped the Dead World Malajact and the Yoke of the Inquisition, the Rogue Traders are licking their wounds on their way to their new colony. Iblis Prime. Yeah, so as part of the deal we made with Duhan Roth, our rival rogue trader, we're doing a joint venture for a little while. A few years. Well, okay, no. First, we have to get this stupid planet into the Imperium. And then we're going to split the profits for a few years, and then it's all ours. Right. Ha 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 Yes. All right, so we're going to get to this planet. Uh, we're going to whip him into shape, make him like Imperium fodder. Uh, and then we're going to get inducted. This should not be too difficult. I right. mean, it's just one planet. That's what That makes a lot of sense that you would think that. And uh, to that end, Roth provided you with a stack of data slates with all of the information that he had about the world. Mm-hmm. And as you started digging into it, you learned about the planet. Well, first you learned about the system of Iblis, the planet of Iblis Prime. And uh, how are you feeling now that you know a little bit more about it? Is it just going to be an easy stroll through the park to bring this planet into the Imperium? Yeah, it turns out Roth screwed us, of course. He gave us a death world. A terrible, horrible planet where everything on it has evolved to kill people. Well, I mean... I don't know if you know, but we're people. I don't know if you know, but people have evolved to kill people, too. (laughs) And that's fine, because that's the way the Emperor wants it. (laughs) So, yeah, after you've briefed the planet, you then turn your attention away from those major regions. You recall the Gilded Canopy, the Ring of Fire, and the Cloud Barons, and uh, the Watchtower, the Orbital Defenses. Yes, auspiciously named areas all. Then you focus on Roth's base of operations, which is the City of Meridian, just clinging to the coast on the edge of the jungle, the, uh, the Gilded Canopy. All right, so we zoom in even further and start taking a look at 
Roth's intelligence reports, which uh, note that Meridian is home to about 100,000 people, mostly laborers, and is controlled by four different factions, uh, which we're going to learn about because we're going to have to deal with them slash subvert them. Who knows? So first of all, there are the Peacemakers, which is the euphemistic title of the mercantile co-op that forms the ruling council and represents the formal political power of Meridian. Um, despite the title, they are pretty violent. Yeah, that's a funny joke, those peacemakers. Kind of like uh, my uh, my peacemaker, which I call my pulse rifle. Right. Yeah. There are the Sentinels, who are a Spartan-like garrison of warriors who protect Meridian from all the terrible things outside in the jungle. They earn their stripes through tests of survival in the Gilded Canopy, and senior members even carry trophies of some sort of horrible predator on the Cloud Barrens called a Chimera. Uh, but they're not just dumb fighters, they have an intelligence network as well that is probably the best on the planet. Then there are also the Devoted, which is the collection of various sects of religious zealots that uh, revere a man they call the Wanderer who supposedly travels the Cloud Barrens performing miracles. Uh, Their descriptions of the Wanderer suggest he could be anything from a charlatan to a demon to a living saint of the God Emperor of Mankind. So 66% chance we've got to kill that guy. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And then there are the Techno-Gangers, which is like a broad term for a bunch of different gangs of underworld scum. Uh, They venture out into the jungle in search of all the Xenostech and the Archaeotech that sort of like abandon in the ruins that the jungle has grown up over. They keep the best stuff for themselves and then they fence or try to counterfeit any of the lesser tech that they find. And, you know, they fight amongst themselves to sit up on top of something that they co- they call the League Table, which uh, I guess they, they're just World of Warcraft gamers, basically, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> they just do raids. <laughs> Oh, sick drops. Uh, ball, in addition, ball run 12495, ball run 12496. <laughs> in addition, Roth's notes mention the librarian, the spy master of the Sentinels, who effectively calls the shots in Meridian, even though the peacemakers have the sort of public political power. All right, this is going to be easy. We'll just infiltrate. We'll, you know, glad hand. We'll pass out uh, some money here and there, some weapons here and there. We got the muscle. This will this will be no problem, right? Right. Right. Great. So, yeah, we show up. We pay the watchtower a modest fee to anchor our ship here. It's not that modest. Nope. It's an, it's an extortionate <laughs> fee. <laughs> uh, and you decide that there's uh, always a chance to make a better first impression so you decide to slip quietly into meridian uh taking only the hostile negotiator with you the gun cutter um where you land on a small private landing pad in one of the outer areas and you're greeted by a dozen men wearing subtle insignia of roth and one familiar if unexpected face it's felipe so you may recall Felipe was Flair's former attendant who proved turncoat in a trade war against the Serena dynasty. And in rogue traderly fashion, as punishment, you left him marooned on a deserted station with a las pistol and enough charge for a single shot. So stupid. You gotta see the body. Why would we do that? Well, <laughs> one way or the other, Felipe now works for Roth, and he is the leader of Roth Enterprises, the uh, going concern that has been formed to colonize this planet. Huh. And our partner. Wonderful. 
and we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we're talking about high-level play. This is inspired by a question from Jerry. Jerry says, My group will wrap up Storm King's Thunder soon, and they want to take their characters through level 20. I have some ideas on where to take the story, but I've never really run D&D at high levels, especially 5th edition. It seems like the challenge rating level starts to break down as the party gets beyond levels 10 to 12 or so. I'm leaning towards having fewer, larger battles and leveling a little more quickly than the raw XP budgets. Any advice on running encounters or campaigns at higher levels would be greatly appreciated. So this episode, we're going to talk about um, not just D&D, but playing uh, RPGs when you've got characters who are quite experienced or powerful. Yeah, I think this is also a fitting time in the Rogue Trader recaps because this is about when you guys started to really max out what Dark Heresy was capable of supporting from a player perspective. Yeah, because our characters are sitting at, what, like 10-ish thousand XP? Right. Yeah. So um, you have lots of abilities. Right, we're getting to that point where it's like, oh, should I send a Lord of Change against you? And we're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Please no. So how is high-level play different? So most RPGs are built to, like mechanically, to focus on inexperienced or characters who are just starting out. Uh, and that makes sense because that's where most of like the story usually takes place anyway, right? Like most games start at level one. Not every game makes it, you know, that long. A lot of games peter out early. A lot of games are relatively short. Uh, so the vast majority of games end up being played between like levels one to ten. Mm-hmm. But that does mean that the rules tend to break down when you're running powerful PCs. I mean, and that this is even the case with rule sets that are specifically catering to high-level play because they they end up just sort of being like more of a guideline. Like anyone who's played the third edition epic level handbook and tried to play any of those characters knows that like all those rules are just a terrible hot mess. Right. Yeah, and I mean, this happens, it's logical because as you get higher in experience and as you make more choices on how you build your character, you end up with more variation across different player characters. So the rules, um, in order to maintain the same level of balance, would have to account for many more variables. That's just incredibly hard to design for. So what happens is the power scale doesn't grow um, even across the board, right? Like players get specialized and they do one thing very, very, very well and other things not so well, but they can lean on that on their strengths. Yeah, so you end up in the situation where an individual character, their abilities are much more lopsided. And this happens with the monsters as well and the party in general. Like if you think about a first level D&D party or, you know, any low level characters or beginning characters in most RPGs, you know, the difference between a character who's good at something and someone who's bad at something is usually like a plus one or a plus two, uh, or maybe like 20% on percentile dice, you know, like there's a narrow range band. But by the time you get to high levels, or, you know, lots of XP, you're you're looking at like, you know, one person has like a 99% chance of succeeding at something and someone else has a 20% chance, you know, or there's like a plus 10 or plus 20% uh, plus 20 difference on a d20 die. Yeah, I mean, even in 5th edition, you can easily get to plus 18 difference uh, on a on a skill check, right? And then even be adding a d4 on top of that. You know, like, your baseline is a plus 20 and a half. Yeah, I mean, we've showed this with some of the builds that we put together in the character creation forge, right? Which is like, oh, hey, this is a ridiculous skill check. Right, like, my average outcome is better than your best roll. Right. 
Uh, and this happens even when you're not trying to do this. Like the way that fifth edition specifically is designed, and it was even more exas- exacerbated in previous editions, is that like if you look at your saving throws, you have a pretty low chance of succeeding on a saving throw if you're not proficient in it and you don't have a high ability. Uh, by the time you get to 15 or 20 levels later, your chance to succeed in that saving throw, like your bonus hasn't improved at all because you right. didn't become proficient in it and your stat didn't get any better. But the DCs, like the difficulty class of the saving throws you're making with that stat are, mm, I don't know, 15 points higher. Yeah, right. So so in practical terms, it's like you needed an 11 to succeed at first level, which was a 50-50 chance with your plus zero, but you need a 19 to succeed at uh, 18th level which is a, you know, 10% chance with your plus zero. Right. Or sometimes it's a DC 24, which is a no percent chance. Uh, Well, that's, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what this means, right? It it doesn't mean, oh, no, high level play, you're totally screwed. But it does mean that high level play is more improvisational. Uh, You're also in this situation where players have so much more agency over the story because, you know, they have abilities, they can decide what they're going to do they have contacts uh, they know people they know the storyline so in general gms just need to be able to react in the moment and and they need to be ready to do that pretty much at any time so let's get into some specific issues that you're going to face when you are running or playing a high level game one thing that i uh have been running into with rogue trader for a long time and one thing that i know happened at the end of morning glory was just corralling all the PCs to keep them moving in one direction instead of 700 directions uh, can be exhausting. Yeah, it's really easy at low levels. Like a big wooden door will stop you from going in a particular direction. Right. Or like a lock works. Yeah. (laughs) Five guards. Right. (laughs) The word of the king. (laughs) Or a reward of 10 gold pieces. I'm not going anywhere, man. We're going to get 10 gold pieces. (laughs) Yeah, but when you get to higher levels, you've got like travel at your disposal. You could have like teleportation magic. Um, You know, those doors are no longer physical barriers to you as you can just crush them. You might have political access. Um, it's, It's very hard to keep the party out of the places they want to go. So, you know, I mean, don't try to keep them away from where they want to go. Make it so that the places that they want to go are where you want them to be. You need to give PCs a reason to be in the place that you want them to be. To give them a reason to be in the place that the story is taking place. So this could be rewards, right? It could be the treasure trove, right? Like it's not difficult to convince your party to go visit the dragon's horde. Because like that's where the cool stuff is. But usually at higher levels... The real lure is story reasons, you know, quests. Someone has sent them there or, you know, this is part of their backstory or like this is leading toward the end game and like they're fighting the the BBEG. They're chasing down an enemy. You know, if you want your party to go somewhere, have the bad guy escape and make it easy for them to follow. Yeah. It's also important to put them in uh, more dangerous and extreme environments, right? Things like inner planes, uh, elemental planes, putting them underwater or in hard vacuum of space. Um, this is the reason that all like BBEGs and spy thrillers have volcano hideouts, <laughs> right? Like make it worse, make it more difficult to be there. Um, it means that they need either more resources or they need to like find special items that are necessary in order to traverse this terrain. 
Yeah, let the opportunity cost of all of these amazing options and abilities that your players now have be your ally. Okay, great. They can teleport anywhere that they want to go. Wonderful. You've like placed the lure in the place that you want them to go, and now they teleport there, and that's not a problem at all, but they used up a 7th level spell slot. Wonderful. That's a slot that they're not using on, you know, simulacrum, right. which is way worse. <laughs> And then I think the other the other key here to corralling your PCs is to just ask them what they're expecting out of end game play. You know, like what is it that is the goal for this character? Why are they still adventuring even though they're level fifteen and are uh, rich beyond measure? Could easily retire to a tower uh, or a castle somewhere, buy a title, and just rule as a local lord. Yeah, but they're out adventuring for a reason. You know, so ask and players be proactive in telling your GM what it is that you want out of this storyline. We had an episode on finishing character arcs. The number of that episode escapes me, but we do have a search option on the website. Players want to wrap up their arcs. They, They want closure by the end of the campaign. And when you're at high level play, you're probably sort of looking at the end of your storyline. You can at least spy it from where you are. So another challenge that you can run into at high-level play is just table management. Um, There's so many more fiddly bits. Your character sheets are more complicated. Players have more abilities and more options. Um, Monsters, in turn, have more complicated stat blocks that you need to figure out how to use and how to, like, make tactically relevant. Yeah, this was the worst part about 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Like, I would purposefully shy away from anything that I had to remember. (laughs) yeah (laughs) please just make all my things baseline things yeah just a a straight plus one please um so you know pcs when you are building your high level character uh or you know you're choosing different options like choose abilities that give you a static or always on bonus because if you forget to use that ability it's exactly the same as if you don't have it Uh, you're also going to want to make sure that you've got in your head or, you know, even on a sheet, whatever is easier for you, have some go-to combat options. You know, if there's going to be a random encounter or you're suddenly getting ambushed, you don't necessarily have time to think, okay, what is is the most optimal tactic in this particular situation? Um, It's fine. I know that the first thing I tend to do is I cast hold person or hold monster, you know? Uh, That's going to be good in 90% of situations. Uh, and then, you know, I might have a secondary one if if for some reason that one doesn't work. This goes along with just the idea of knowing what's on your sheet, right? Like, you have to be responsible for your character sheet. There's too much stuff for the GM to help you along the way that, that a GM can in lower levels. Yeah, I think too many times, and maybe this, I see this in some actual plays, is uh, there are people who've been playing the same character for like a year or two years, and they still don't quite know how their abilities work, and... I mean, that's fine if that's how you want to play, but they're also getting frustrated that they're not effective. And like, the, it falls on the GM to be like, hey, I mean, you know that like you actually attack twice, right? Instead of once. Right. Uh, you know that you're actually doing twice as much damage, but like, that's just so much more work for the GM. There's so much paperwork for the GM to handle at high levels. Like, be helpful. Know your sheet. Know how your abilities actually work. And then when you're doing more things on your turn, it's important to kind of take as little time to do it as possible. So one thing that can be helpful uh, at higher levels is to just roll all of your dice at once and like pay attention to what's going on around you. So like if you pick up your dice and uh, your damage dice and your D20 to roll to hit, then if the number is high enough, you just count up the dice. And if not, you ignore them. Yeah. um, 
just make an investment and get a bunch of dice if you have a character who uses a bunch of dice. You know, if you're making four attacks around, roll four d20s at the same time. You know, don't roll one d20 four times in a row. That slows down everything so much. And you're doing it every single round. Like, just do it all at once. Right. And yeah, like, same thing. Like, have all your damage dice in one pile. And if you hit twice, roll it twice. Like, roll the pile, count it, roll it again, count it, you know? Right. Uh, and pay attention. Okay, so if you're making four attacks and you hit with AC 20, then anything that rolled higher than the previous die automatically hits. Don't You don't have to ask every single time. Like if I if they said AC 20 hits, I don't have to be like, all right, does AC 22 hit? Of course, AC 22 hits. AC 20 just hit. <laughs> That's how math works. Um, from the GM side, uh, it's important to manage your monsters. Um, don't try and run like, you know, six unique monsters by yourself. Use a couple, maybe three. Um, group them if you need to, but keep your stat blocks uh, streamlined so that you can actually use all of their abilities and not realize halfway through that, oh, I forgot that thing that I was supposed to do at the beginning of the fight, and now it's a it's horribly wrong. Yeah, and try not to mix and match complicated monsters, right? Like, all right, you have an, an ancient dragon. That's really cool, and they're flanked by... Um, you know, if you want to flank them with six ogres, wonderful. You're dealing with two stat blocks. It's not a problem. Uh, don't throw in also a beholder who is also complicated and has its own legendary actions and then also some ogres and then a couple different kinds of giants like just streamline it right right yeah this is something that i do um with dark heresy because the stat blocks for monsters are awful yeah oh god because uh, they're all talents and traits that you need to then cross-reference so either if I'm running them straight, I will pull those talents and traits out into a summary myself so that I know what the abilities mean. But more often, I just trade them so that I'm using the same ones that all make sense and make them more competitive, mm-hmm. which is why they all have step aside. <laughs> <laughs> which is why we keep unloading on full auto. <laughs> is this a dodgy monster? It has step aside. <laughs> uh, and then GMs delegate, delegate at the table. Like at high levels, especially, you should not be the one handling the initiative order. Someone else should be doing that. Um, you should not necessarily be the one who's keeping track of uh, status effects on the PCs. You know, the player should be doing that or one person should be taking, should be tracking all of that. Right. But really, all of you are actually here to, to talk about how to create appropriate combat challenges. Yeah, I mean, that's what it all comes down to, right? Is that combat hard? Yeah, and high-level combat is always going to be swingy. Um, in D&D in particular, many saving throws are just binary, right? Like you save and absolutely nothing happens, uh, or you don't save and you are screwed. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called save or suck. You also get into this situation where uh, the game can sort of turn into rock, paper, scissors. Like, you know, like we talked about, you'll be very good at one thing and very bad at another. So you'll have a fighter who cannot miss an, an attack roll, but will always fail a wisdom saving throw. Yep. Um, or the flip side is you get rocket tag, mm-hmm. which is that whoever hits first wins because you deal so much damage that you just like that person dies before they get to act. Right. Uh, and then it just becomes about initiative. Which I think we did build a character in the forge that was just all about initiative. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so Jerry is absolutely correct. The uh, challenge rating system in 5th edition absolutely breaks down at high levels. Um, and it's probably on the weaker side. Uh, it doesn't take into account any magic items. And I would say like the 
majority, maybe even the vast majority of 5e games include magic items in in some way. I mean, 100% of published adventures do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I would just start by ramping up the difficulty. When I was doing Morning Glory, um, I mean, those characters were actually even a little more powerful than normal ones because I gave them epic destinies. But even before that, I basically needed to throw like what was rated as a deadly encounter at you guys every single time. Now, this also meant, <laughs> Jerry is also correct, you don't want to do the proscribed six to eight encounters uh, per level, right? Because that's just going to take forever because, you know, high level combats also take longer. I think right. it would have been like months and months between leveling up. Right. I mean, it would have been sessions and sessions between um, actually making meaningful progress if we had multiple encounters per day. Right. I mean, sometimes I tried to cram in two, but honestly, it was more fun, I think, to just do one big set piece battle approximately per session. Yep. Right. So there are some tips for working um, around the CR system. So uh, Cobalt Fight Club, um, you can Google that. That's a website that is very helpful in organizing your monsters and actually like setting up and running your encounters. If you play with spellcasters, either humanoid spellcasters uh, or uh, monsters with spellcasting abilities, they have many different options uh, that you can decide between depending on how the fight is going. Uh, so they're, they're just, uh, it's easier to be reactive without having to make up abilities for your monsters on the fly. Mm-hmm. And and what I like to do is, unfortunately, 5th edition stat blocks list every single spell a spell an NPC spellcaster knows. Like every single cantrip, every prestidigitation, like, right. you know, oh, disguise self, that's great. Okay, just cross out or remove or completely ignore any of those abilities that are not going to be used in combat. Because if it's going to be used outside of combat, then you don't need a spell list. You just, it just does whatever you need it to do, right? Like right. if you need it to cast mind blank, then it did three days ago. Uh, it can also be helpful to add traps um, to your combat encounters, um, especially if you put them on a timer or introduce them through lair actions. Um, this can can add difficulty or, or add variation in the fight without necessarily adding more effort for you to manage. Yeah, the trap is, is, is just sort of an if-then effect, right? It's it's very easy. Like, okay, you stepped in that space, great, uh, it explodes. Right. Um, also, in general, you want to reduce randomness. It makes it easier to plan your fight and, and anticipate your tactics, um, which is always a heavier burden on the GM than on the players. Mm-hmm. Um Things like recharge mechanics can also just become problematic for difficulty level. You know, like if you use your dragon's breath and you immediately get it back the next turn and use it again, and then you immediately get it back the next turn and use it a third time, like the dragon probably wins that fight um, nine times out of ten in three rounds. Mm -hmm. But if you actually recharge it on average and it's only like every third round, well, now that's a fair fight and you've got a decent chance of actually having a really memorable encounter. Yeah, and it helps you plan it out, you know? Like, all right, I'm trying to manage the flow of this fight, but I happen to roll a five or a six, like, you guys are nuked. That's it, you know? Uh, Or I keep rolling ones, and, like, this monster gets steamrolled because the CR assumes that it recharges (laughs) in an average number of rounds. Right. You can also send monsters in waves. Uh, This is especially helpful if you have uh, parties that are alpha striking, you know, if they're... If they're ambushing a lot and then assassinating or like sharpshooting from a distance and taking everybody out, great. All right. They slaughtered the first round. In comes the second one. 
we did an episode called alternate combat objectives which is like maybe episode three um but the basic idea here is that um storytelling doesn't end when you start a fight um so make sure that there's something going on in that fight um that motivates the characters other than answering the question of will i survive this fight yeah because at high levels it's almost guaranteed that you do survive this fight it's really hard to kill high level characters at least in D D. i think in rogue right. trader it's easier <laughs> well sort of really <laughs> well i mean if you if you're at the point where you've sort of used up most of your fate points or you've already burnt them just to get to this point you know to have ten thousand xp true true yeah i mean the, the basically though you just want to make sure that like you know, there's a question of will the ritual complete? Um, will the uh, NPC be rescued? You know, will uh, will you recover the artifact before um, the enemy arrives? Like, whatever it is, right? Just make sure that there's some question to answer in the fight that isn't just survival. Yeah, and it gives not only the PCs, but also the enemies different things to do rather than just attack each other you know so it saves you from that situation where you've got the monster who like should be attacking the character who's just about to die and you're pretty sure that like this is going to take them out and you didn't necessarily want them to happen because it was all just bad luck well instead they're actually going to run over here and like try to hurry up and finish the ritual because that is like um that is something that is useful for them to be doing and it would make sense within the story without it's you have those two options there right um i think this is sort of 5e canon uh but i'm pretty sure it applies to almost every rpg uh, monsters that are alone solos will die you just don't have the kind of action economy that you need to take on an entire party of four to six characters alone so don't think don't have your solos. Uh, make sure you're always including some kind of henchman. Speed right. bumps, they, they don't even need to be high level necessarily. And then just like kind of rules of fair GMing, like don't do save or die spells uh, and avoid long-term like mass save or suck spells. You know, like things like disintegrate, <laughs> like <sighs> where you fail the save and now you don't exist anymore. You know, it's like uh, that's a pretty rough way to end it. Yeah, uh, or things like uh, Mind Blast. Um, that <laughs> that targets most people's bad save intelligence. Uh, it affects a 60-foot cone. It can take out an entire party for an entire minute, um, which just means that they're going to get wrecked. Right. Uh, or even if they don't get wrecked, even if they survive, it just means that people are sitting there and they don't have any fun because they, they're just stunned the whole time. Yeah, for 10 rounds. Right. Uh, now they, you know, they do get saves. Uh, unfortunately, fifth edition doesn't really do a good job of allowing you to grant saves to other people to sort of like help them get out of something earlier. You can't like shake someone out of being mind blasted. Right. Uh, but if you do use those kinds of abilities, then it actually is helpful to like add in some sort of clause, you know, like sleep is really bad or um, hypnotic pattern is really bad. But if one of the other monsters uses up their action, um, to wake someone up or shake them out of it, then, you know, they're back in the fight. Right. Yeah. So that kind of alludes to the corollary, which is just like, it's cool to do that stuff to a single target um, because you do have party members that can help them Mm -hmm. um, and sort of mitigate the damage that they're taking as a result, whether that means, you know, uh, waking them up from a sleep or um, reviving them when they die. Yeah. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. or when they're making death saving throws or even just as simple as like healing them their hit points back right like the party should be working together like that's fun to weaken one momentarily to require them to get some help right but if you weaken everybody all at the same time then there's nobody left to help right um and then another one that's important is don't be afraid to kill your your pcs um like at high levels especially there are enough ways to mitigate death (laughs) like even if death is the ending of the character or even if death is permanent, like it doesn't necessarily have to be the end of the character. Right. And yeah, especially in something like D and I mean, we have revivify now, you know, like no combat lasts more than a minute at the end. We just walk around the battlefield revivifying everybody. Yep. And then like here, drink a potion. You're good. Okay. Right. Right. Or Which, like, you know, true res. <laughs> Yeah, eventually. I mean, you know, it takes time. Well, so yeah, let's talk about resurrection a bit because I think it warrants a spot here. Uh, It does take time and resources uh, if you're doing something like Raise Dead, Reincarnate, or uh, Resurrection or True Resurrection. Um, But it does sort of give license to both the players and the GM to kind of go all out. You know, the players can be maybe not reckless, but a little more risky because they know that you know, one bad roll doesn't necessarily kill you. Uh, although I guess if you fall into lava at like level 11, you're probably dead dead because <laughs> we're not getting that body back to raise it. <laughs> right. Uh, but as a GM, it does mean that, you know, you don't necessarily have to pull those punches. The worst thing that happens is as long as one person survives, they can drag the other bodies out and eventually pay to get them back. So if you don't have resurrection available in your game, uh, like I said, there's often ways to mitigate um, the death of a character. So it, it could be that they are um, like an eclipse phase, eclipse phase character just, you know, re-sleeves into a new body. Right. Or maybe the the save or die was a Medusa's petrifying gaze. Well, that can be undone. You're not dead dead. Right. Um, if you do have characters who die permanently... Uh, it's it is a little more difficult at high levels to sort of figure out who this person is going to play now and how it makes sense in the story to bring them in. So I I would say ahead of time you kind of want to have ideas for replacement characters. Like individual players should have ideas for what their replacement character would be if their character did die permanently, and then work together to figure out a a reason that this character is joining the party in the first place and why is it that they are so powerful right (laughs) like what were they doing up to this point that they're also level 18 yeah i mean it's not without cost because you will lose the personal plot threads of that character um if they die but like you know at least you have a character who can continue sort of the party's plot thread um and move towards the party's objective Um, right but for that reason i think it's important like don't kill your PCs um, one session before like the climactic boss fight of level 18, you know, like maybe make sure that the PCs survive to die in the boss fight (laughs) instead of dying on the way to the boss fight. Yeah. I think there's a window there um, between like the final climactic battle and, you know, a session or two before where all the threads are finally coming together where, I mean, don't tell your party this, but like, yeah, don't, don't kill them. Fudge the dice if you need to, because it's a super lame end to a story. If you die in the room before the final battle 
especially if it's something dumb like you know no one was able to put uh, to extinguish a fire right <laughs> I forgot I forgot to check for traps whoops <laughs> it is way more cool for that to happen uh, because you got incinerated by dragon breath like right. that is a story people want to remember and like they're still dead <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I would even say if you are a killer GM who's like, no, we play the dice where they lie. Like, save the death. You know? Like, they don't die right now. Just save that terrible role for later. Like, they are dead men walking, but they don't need to know that yet. Right, right. Uh, so let's talk about gear, because I think that's a, a cross-section of most systems that can also change the the power level of the game. Yeah, quality gear makes everything exponentially easier. Uh, this certainly uh, we found in Rogue Trader. You know, if, if you're able to requisition enough good stuff, everything becomes not a cakewalk, but survivable. So, yeah, and, and actually uh, it's funny because that's actually how it works in Rogue Trader more so is like not just um, increasing your potency, right? Like how how well you do the things you're good at, but it also lets you mitigate the weak spots. Um, so like we talked about with saving throws in D and D right. Like there, there are multiple items that allow you to increase your saving throws. And a lot of times they're not even dedicated items that do it. They're just a, a side benefit of armor or, a, you know, a staff or something like that. So you can raise your bad saves um, without investing too many resources through gear. Yeah. In never winter nights, I'm trying to find that helmet that gives you permanent mind blank because I'm a fighter. <laughs> oh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I fail every wisdom save. Um, there's also like a ton of utility items that you'll have that will just give you more options on how to solve problems. Like magic carpets, you know, like suddenly anyone can fly relatively safely. Yeah, it's important to adjust the kinds of high level encounters you're building based on whether these things are available, you know? So it doesn't matter if you're a first level fighter or a 20th level fighter, you can't fly. Like there's nothing in your in your skill set that's gonna let you like chase someone who's flying straight up. Right. Um so if low level magic items like a broom of flying or like those winged boots or whatever are available, now the fighter has a way to to overcome that. And if you are a player, like know those weaknesses that you have. Know that you need to find some way to mitigate that because you don't want to be in a situation where like there's no way for you to participate in a combat. Right. And then just a D and D specific note. The main issue you run into with magic items in D&D, at least in 5th edition, is the attunement mechanic. Um, any item that gives you benefit without requiring attunement, um, you want to watch out for those. Because if you've only got three attunement slots, like you can't go too far off the rails. But when you start adding items that don't require attunement, you can end up with a pretty big um, set of abilities. Yeah, that's the only way you get the Christmas tree these days. Yeah, like, you know, covered in magic items that blind anyone who used to detect magic. Because I got I got glows of thievery, and I got goggles of night, and I got um, the apparatus of qualish. <laughs> I think that may be showing up soon at some point. Hmm. Hmm. So another thing you want to do with high level play is make sure that you've got a grand scale for your activities, right? Like everything should be bigger and more impactful when you're high level. Yeah, it's not all about the numbers. It's not all about making sure that combat is balanced. You know, it's fine to work out the appropriate challenge rating, 
but what is it that the PCs are doing that is actually worthy of their attention? You know, in a lot of games, they are nearly gods. And even in, you know, grittier games, they they are champions, you know. Um, there are many things they could be doing. So if they're having a battle, great. Put that battle, like, you know, on top of the castle in front of everyone where everyone can see, you know, and they can, like, watch them save the city. Uh, or, you know, maybe it's just in the sky or, like, on Mount Celestia, you know, mm-hmm. have the environs be amazing. Yeah, and then also, like, pay attention to, like, what it is that they're fighting for and what the cost is if they fail. You know, like, it's fine to fight the stat block for uh, one of the demon princes or one of the demon lords, right? Like, that's great. Um, I am, I'm confident that you will have a good fight with that. But it is way more exciting if you're fighting off Baphomet because he is about to invade the Prime Material Plane uh, with all of the Nine Hells behind him. And... Uh, and and you defeating him now will guarantee hundreds of years of peace uh, from his harassment. And you failing now means everyone you know or love, every NPC that you've dealt with in this campaign dies a horrible death. Right. Like, that isn't just, I defeated a level, or a CR-23 monster and a few of uh, of his henchmen. That is, I saved the world, and that's a cooler story. So there's no way that we can give you advice on every possible pitfall or issue you might come across just because the array of abilities for high-level characters runs the gamut. I mean, it's almost literally anything, right? Like you have the wish spell. It's literally anything. Right. (laughs) Uh, So you do need to know your players. And this isn't just their sheets, although you should know their sheets. You should have a good idea of what they're capable of, the kind of spells that they like to use. Um, but you're going to want to know their play style. Like, what is it that they like to do? Do they like to kick in the door and rush in without necessarily paying attention? If the game has been too easy so far, then great. Put traps directly inside the door. <laughs> if things have been way too hard and they've been stumbling into things, then, you know, maybe the monsters are a little bit less prepared. Right. Um, and likewise, as a player, it's good to know your GM. Like... You want to think about what are the types of challenges you're going to face? What are your character's weaknesses that can be exploited? Um, what has the GM done in the past? Um, because all of this is about getting the best end to the story, right? Like that's high level D&D is about driving towards an ending that's going to be fun for everybody. Right. And you can be proactive about this. Like in Morning Glory, you actually came to me near the end and was like, um, I'm kind of a fire-based sorcerer and I'm pretty sure we're fighting fiends. Yeah, I need something. Right. Is this <laughs> like, going to be a problem for me? What's going on? Like, Brand is looking for something. <laughs> right, exactly. Hey, Brand knows he's going to have an uphill battle here. Like, if you don't have something for him, he's going to go create something. <laughs> and I need you on board with that when that happens, okay? Right. <laughs> um. Yeah, you're, you want to make sure that you're, you're telegraphing these this kind of information to your players so that if they do have those questions or concerns, they can bring them up. Um. You don't necessarily want the final end bad guy of your entire campaign to be something that they've never, ever seen before. You know, if they've been fighting giants up until now, eh, the lich probably shouldn't be the very first undead that they meet because then no one's gotten holy water. No one's figured out that, like, you know, my critical hits are don't work on these things. You know, no lich one went out. giant. Yeah, exactly. I have the, the hammer of giant slaying, you know? <laughs> well, lich giant. <laughs> <laughs> I Take am, your hammer of witch slaying, your hammer of giant slaying. They both work. Put them together. I uh, enlarge the lich. 
<laughs> right. uh, does that count? Is that good enough? It is a giant lich. Right. What if I reduce myself? It is giant to me. <laughs> does does the hammer know? Does the hammer care? <laughs> right. So I think to kind of wrap this up, uh, the main takeaway for making high-level play work is to ensure that whatever you're doing mechanically is supporting the story um, far more like because because the mechanics will not be as satisfying on their own necessarily the way they can be at lower levels. You know, like the challenge of overcoming uh, a group of kobolds is is meaningful. Like that, that's that's a reward in and of itself at low levels. Um, just defeating a few monsters is not that meaningful at high levels. So the context of that fight is what's so critical to making high level play feel spectacular. Yeah, there are a lot of opportunities here to get very narrative. Um, we've talked and complained before about mass combat, uh, but you can bring in mass combat and basically just hand wave and narratively describe the way that the party is defeating entire armies or leading entire armies. Um, and, you know, when they come to certain kinds of combats, yes, you get into the nitty gritty of, you know, eight rounds of, of hacking and slashing, but many other things on the periphery can just be handled by talking about the story and right. knowing that like the party is capable enough and like uh, has enough resources that like they do that, they figure it out. Right. I don't necessarily need you to tell me exactly how you get to the top of the mountain. Like you have magic that rivals gods. You get to the top of the mountain. Right. All right. Do you hear that? Ishan? Uh, it's us falling down the mountain. Uh, it was just one-way magic. Oh, bummer. Guess you're going to have to re-roll right before the boss fight. <laughs> Can you save this death? Just sandbag it. Nope, we're moving on to the character creation forge. No, but before... my hammer of lich and giant slaying. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sounds Carne. That's malice minus meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. I'm Lisa Chen, and I host Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop games. There are so many women to behold in this amazing hobby, and our experiences as female gamers are as diverse as we are as individuals. Through one-on-one -on -one interviews, audio essays, and panel discussions, all centered around a monthly theme, the guests on Beholder share their unique stories as players, game masters, designers, artists, organizers, and so much more. Their words are inspiring, uplifting, and informative. Check out Behold Her Podcast wherever podcasts are found or visit BeholdHerPodcast.com. And we're back. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building Jack Frost, which is a Twitter request from at Hula Chaser. Shane, who's Jack Frost? You seem like the kind of guy who would know that. I, I didn't. I had I literally had to look at the Jack Frost. <laughs> we really Wikipedia. like Jack Frost nipping at your nose. You didn't know like that. Oh no no no. So yeah. So I know Jack Frost as like the personification the personification of cold. Okay, okay. Right. Like like Old Man Winter. Right. Mm -hmm. Like not a real thing. Uh, and then I know that oh, movie like Elsa. with like Elsa. Jack Frost is Elsa. Like, I don't know what Elsa is from Frozen. Yeah. Okay. Did you not watch Frozen? It's adorable. Absolutely. You should not. see it. It's it's about true love. I haven't seen a Disney movie in very long. Like, like a very long time. Actually, Shane, all the movies that all of us watch are Disney movies now. Well, you're right. Yeah.
Yeah. I haven't seen a Disney movie since the last Star Wars. There we go. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so I didn't know like who the characterization of Jack Frost would be. I learned that Jack Frost is a comic book character and a character from Rise of the Guardians. And um, I mean, I did know that he was in that like weird horror movie in like the late 90s. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, he was played by like Michael Keaton. Isn't he the bad uh, guy in one of like the Santa Claus movies? Yeah, the third Santa Claus, uh, Martin Short <laughs> yes. plays uh, plays Jack Frost. So like, I knew those things, right? But like, none of those are RPG characters. Um, so it turns out, like, the Rise of the Gardens version is a teenager who doesn't want to be bound by any responsibility and uses a staff to project cold and ice, uh, mostly for his own amusement. Mm, sounds like a D and D character. That feels like a little more like a D and D character, right? Yeah. So this feels like a character that is. Um, basically based on spell selection yeah because there isn't actually a great character for like elemental devotion in D. &D. um the the closest we really get to it is the dragon sorcerer and that's more just a bloodline thing um there's not really like a, a druid or a wizard who really focuses on one element as their as their thing so i did go take a look through get some target spells so um they mostly go up to level six We've got Investiture of Ice and Odaluke's Freezing Sphere. At 5th level, we get Cone of Cold. 4th level is Ice Storm. 3rd level is Sleet Storm, which isn't technically, you know, snow, but I feel like it's like an autumn, you know, cusp of winter. It's there, right. It, my Herald is Sleet. Right. Uh, from Xanathar's Guide, we get Snillock's Snowball Swarm. Uh, Say great. that 18 times fast. I will not. Okay. <laughs> Um, Frostbite and Ray of Frost are the cantrips. Um, I think there's a couple other lower level frost spells, but you know, if you can get the big ones, um, the small ones kind of work themselves out. And it's strangely chill touch, not cold damage. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and as it turns out, almost all of these spells, uh, that do frost damage are wizard spells. I was disappointed to see how few of them are druid spells. Uh, my yeah. original thought was druid. Yeah, an um, Arctic Druid would have been um, thematic, but you're right. It doesn't really play out that way. Um, it's more a character who saves polar bears. Right, uh, right. I will say, looking at this list, though, like these are all good spells. They are good spells, yeah. They hit um, con saves very hard. Uh, yeah, and you got a bit of like bludgeoning damage mixed in there, so you're not mm -hmm. just stuck with cold. Right. All right, so what's the build? The build is Evocation Wizard, 14, uh, Dragon Sorcerer, 6. This seems like an obvious pairing, but I don't know that we've actually done it before. No, it's it's real simple. Um, it's it's, real it's simple. all about that spell selection. That's right. I hit things with spells. <laughs> right. Um, so as an evoker, uh, you will get 7th level spells. Um, Ninth level ones... slots, though. What's that? Ninth level slots, though. Yeah, yeah. When, when you add in the, the sorcerer levels, you have ninth level slots. You'll get spells up to seventh level um all the ones mentioned above um the the main thing we go to 14 for is over channel which lets you maximize the damage of your frost spells uh, you could just once i think it's once per long rest you can um just do max damage and then every time you do it afterwards you take 2d12 <laughs> necrotic damage that's not preventable done i'll take it that's yeah. what potions are for <laughs> right um, Evoker also gets some other like handy things like Sculpt Spell and um, uh, adding your intelligence damage or intelligence modifier to your damage. But uh, that's all kind of secondary to what Jack Frost is about, which is really just getting those spells. 
Oh, so you you don't have to murder your entire party too? Ideally. <laughs> From Dragon Source, uh, we're going to pick silver or white here because, you know, you want cold damage. Right. Eh? A little extra HP, you get a full-time mage armor from your scales, and you get to add charisma to cold damage uh, one time per spell casting. Although I think most of these, you're only doing one, one damage effect damage. anyway. Right, so you're, yeah. everyone's taking that damage. Yeah, and just the way that you work out here, you can actually max your charisma and your intelligence. You know, you don't really need a, a second or tertiary stat, so um, you could be adding up to 10 damage. Um but more realistically, probably like eight damage between your intelligence and your uh, charisma. But it's worth it to have eights and everything else. Right. You, you're a wizard and a sorcerer. You don't need uh, strength or dexterity or constitution or wisdom. Uh, you might want con or dex, but you don't need wisdom. No, no, not you, at all. You, I think Jack sure. Frost, like canonically, pretty much like is not a very wise person. No, and no. like in uh, Rise of the Guardians, he's a teenager. <laughs> like He's an impulsive teenager. What do you expect? Um, for your meta magic, though, you want to go flavor here and take extended spell and heightened spell. This allows you to increase the um, length of your spells and also increase the uh, difficulty to save against them since so many of these require a con save. Winter is coming, it's staying, and it will be bad. Exactly. All right, for leveling order, I'm thinking probably wizard to five for third level spells, knock out some sorcerer, and then finish off wizard. Yeah, I think that probably works. Um, the alternative is to go up to nine and get your fifth level spells, Cone of Cold and Ice Storm, um, and then go over to Sorcerer. So, Ishin, who is your Jack Frost? My Jack Frost uh, is a half dragon. Uh, okay. Although, I guess mechanically it doesn't really show up, it just shows up as Dragon Sorcerer. But, you know, her. Uh, you get some scales. Yeah, there you go. Shiny. Uh yeah, her mother was a was a silver dragon because uh, white dragons are dumb. So silver, uh, and you know silver has they have that penchant for turning into people. And you know after a few decades around people, you sort of uh you get the you get the taste for it, right? Right, you get the that skin fetish rather than scales. Okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you go native. Uh, however. She feels like she needs to prove herself to her mother because all she is is a tiny, puny little humanoid, right? Now, yeah, sure, she's got the bloodline. She's got the potential uh, inside. But, you know, she doesn't have big claws. She doesn't have uh, breath. She, she doesn't really have innate magic, right? Uh, she's seems like just a regular, normal human, Uh so she says, you know what? Fine. You know, if the magic isn't blossoming out of me, if it isn't, if it isn't like pouring out of me, like these stories that I've heard, I'm going to go find it myself. She joins wizarding school and hones her craft that way, uh, leans into her bloodline. She likes the cold anyway. It never bothered her. Uh, and once she's eventually unlocked enough of the magic, she realizes, ah, okay, I learned this like through book, book learning, but now, now it's resonating with me. You know, I've cast these spells enough. Uh, it's finally awakened the magic in my blood. And then, you know, she uh, begins exploring her uh, sorcerer's capabilities and then further amplifies that with more magical knowledge because, of course, what is mom like? Magic items and stuff. So, you know, mm-hmm. wizards are the ones who are going to make that. And you got to make a tower. You know, mom's all like, do you have a tower yet? You know, did you, did you finish wizarding school? So, of course, she went back and finished. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what about 
your Jack Frost? Uh, my Jack Frost is actually uh, from the Feywild. Uh, one, of, one of the few humans who was born in the Feywild and was a subject of the uh, Winter Queen's Court. That's a good gig if you can get it. Uh, yeah, well, it's a very competitive position. <laughs> um, but actually, my Jack Frost has fled the Winter Queen's domain uh, into uh, the, the Prime Material Plane um, and takes with him a little bit of his magic. So rather than being a dragon sorcerer, I would prefer to be like... Uh, you know, a fey sorcerer. Um, and I think I would actually start with my sorcerer levels um, first. Mm. And then uh, once in the prime material plane, of course, my Jack Frost has a has an issue. It, it, it's slowly being cut off from the magic of the Feywild and needs to learn magic the human way, uh, which would be when you start taking those evocation levels, uh, those evoker levels, just studying the old-fashioned way mm. uh, in order to continue... Um, Though, because so much of your magic is bound to the Winter Queen, um, you still got a big focus on Frost. Yeah. Also, it's so hot here on the Prime Material. I just feel like I should make it colder. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everyone's so sweaty. Also, like, you get all of those great Mr. Freeze puns. <laughs> Everybody, chill out. <laughs> I still see you. <laughs> All right, before we wrap up, let's take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us an iTunes review. Uh, If you leave us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And this is Best Help for DMing I Found So Far by Amateur Suchtler. Suchtler. From Germany. Yeah, yeah. Came for the character creation, stayed for the great explanation of game mechanics, the interesting thoughts about how to implement different themes, and just too much more for my limited vocabulary to say. Five stars, totally deserved, but also in the hopes of Shane or Ishin reading, quote, Forgotten Realms isn't terrible, and Warhammer 40k is, is overrated. Out loud. Well, wow. you have certainly betrayed me. <laughs> Amateur Suchtler, you have made me read your terrible sentence. Uh, I think we're going to cut that little snippet and paste it everywhere. <laughs> it's going to show up on the backs of books. Oh my God. I think the next like Sword Coast, Sword Coast Adventures Guide 2 on the back should say, Forgotten Realms isn't terrible and Warhammer 40k is overrated. Shane. Total party thrill. <laughs> I mean, I would pay them money for them to put that quote on the book. <laughs> you can't buy that kind of publicity. We've tried. Yeah, literally, you can't do it. Uh, Well, that was a fun little game. Thank you. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about running evil parties. You know, like uh, anything during college. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building the Blighter. Well, that's it for episode 176 of Total Party Thrill. I hope you lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is also brought to you by Elderwood Academy. Elderwood Academy are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including dice towers, dice trays, dice boxes, deck boxes, dice, and more. 
All of their products are crafted to look like spellbooks, scroll cases, codexes, and other awesome fantasy gear that we love. Including the Hex Chest Dice Box. That is a mouthful. Also, a mouthful is the number of dice you can fit in this thing. <laughs> That's uh, oddly true. <laughs> There's two different kinds. There's the uh, the compartmentalized one that can hold seven different dice. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yes, seven different dice. Uh, or there's the one with no compartments, and I think you can cram 14 or 15 normal-sized dice in that thing. Mm-hmm. I like the way they sound when you shake them. There's a, yeah. It's like a maraca type if you've got the one with the no compartments. And the one with right. compartments, uh, I don't know, it's like a coin purse, I think. Yeah. So uh, when you choose your hex chest, you can customize the wood uh, that it is made out of. You can also choose art to be uh, engraved on the top of it. Um, and, uh, there are some, some cool designs that you can have there or just simple borders. Yeah. They've got, uh, magnetic closures and they come with a velvet bag and a foam insert. Oh, if you want to keep them quiet, but I don't like to keep them quiet. Yeah. Why would you ever want to keep them quiet? You like to announce your dice are in the room, don't you, Ishan? Yes, I do. You know, I throw them on the table. I mean, gently, cause I don't want to hurt the wooden box, but still. So you can pick up your hex chest dice box and many more awesome items at www.elderwoodacademy.com slash don't split. Tell them DSPN sent you. They'll know what you mean, probably. When you click that link. Yes. <laughs>